This is the Global Research News Hour in the summer, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The settler population receives water and other resources following agreements and treaties that were not respected by settlers and used policies to subjugate the indigenous population to colonialism and genocide. We're trying to work to reverse these trends and re-enter partnerships based on respect. This week on the show, we are presenting a bit of coverage of the uprising in Peru and of the U.S. and Canadian roles in supporting the ousting of their president, Pedro Castillo, from power on December 7, 2022. President of South America's third largest country was replaced by his vice president, Dina Bularte. Castillo's supporters started widespread protests. As a result, a national state of emergency was declared on December 14th, removing some constitutional protections from citizens, including rights preventing troops from staying within private homes and buildings, freedom of movement, and freedom of assembly. Castillo was given 36 days of detention on top of the treat trial, 18 months rel- related to allegations of corruption. Meanwhile, security forces have shot hundreds and killed more than 60 mostly indigenous protesters since Castillo's ouster. Their demands include the let resignation of Bularte, early elections, and the closure of Congress which remain unanswered. Interestingly, while many foreign countries in the region reject Dina Bularte as president, the United States and Canada back the ouster and support her reign as government. The audio you are about to hear comes from the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which had convened a panel discussion in early February to discuss the coup. What is happening on the ground and the role of the United States and Canada in backing the ouster. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute is a nonpartisan group in Canada, critical of several aspects of the country's foreign policy, including racism embedded in its policy, and also monitors corporate Canada's international activities, noting Canadians have a conception of the country's policy that is based more on PR than on reality. The group aims to bridge the gap between government policy and public perception. Speakers at the talk included Ilian Carlin Ranquil, a Peruvian political scientist, Ben Norton, a journalist and analyst focused primarily on geopolitics, international political economy, and U.S. foreign policy, and based in Latin America. Eve Engler, author and activist outspoken on Canadian foreign policy, and Kirsten Francesconi, 
an assistant professor of International Development Studies Department at Trent University and a former Latin America program coordinator. We will discuss the discussion right away with Ileana Carlin Ronquil. As an activist, she advocates for gender equality and human rights. In her talk, she gives us a sense of what is happening on the ground throughout the Peruvian situation. The first thing I would like to say is that the country has had six presidents in six years. We are experiencing a political crisis that overlaps with a social crisis, aggravated, of course, by the pandemic. We have now landed in an authoritarian regime where human rights are violated, checks and balances are broken, the separation of powers is at least poor, there is an oligopoly on the, of the media, and protest is criminalized. I will now talk a little bit about each one of these topics. About human rights. Well, today marks two months of the Boluarte regime and there are already 62 dead. Unfortunately, the country's elites, especially in Lima, do not seem to see this as a problem. Boluarte came to power as a product of a constitutional succession, that is true, but at the very, very first moment, that, that started a transition to authoritarianism in our country. That very same day, and in front of a legislative branch that is approved only by several per percent of Peruvians, Boluarte made her very first big mistake. During her speech, Boluarte said that she would stay in office until the year 2026. Right after the first state murders, we began to see around here things that actually we have not seen since the 90s. President Boluarte decided to address a message to the nation from the government palace surrounded by military and police chiefs. Also, uh, she rewarded the Minister of Defense at the time, who is actually responsible for the tragic armed operations making him president of the Council of Ministers. He is now currently the president of our Council of Ministers. With the police completely out of control in regions such as Apurimac, Puno, and Ayacucho, there is a clear pattern found in the necropsies. Gunshots to the head, to the neck, or to the abdomen. These are, of course, not isolated cases. These patterns obeys orders. Tragically, there is another pattern among, among those killed. The three mentioned regions are located in the southern highlands of Peru. They are poor regions which concentrate a large numbers of indigenous population who speak Quechua and Aymara. It is not a secret that Peruvian society is profoundly racist and unequal. Who are the dead we are talking about? Among the murdered, there are six minors. One medical resident who was treating an injured person when he was shot. One person who went out of his house to help an injured man who fell at his door. And the rest of them were unarmed poor people who were shot with no mercy. There is no one taking responsibility for these crimes. 
President Boluarte insists that she does not understand why there are demonstrations on the streets. She says that they are violent mobs seeking for chaos. About checks and balances. This Congress has deeply damaged the balance of powers in Peru. During the entire government of Castillo, for one year and a half, there were three impeachment attempts under the very unclear category of permanent moral incapacity. They have modified the current constitution as much as they want it and are not accountable to anyone, anyone for that. As I said previously, it is no coincidence that they are approved only by 7% of the citizens. In the last two months, the Congress has also failed to approve three initiatives to shorten the presidential term and to have new elections this year, new general elections this year, including both Congress and the president. This is the main demand of the people on the streets. About the separation of powers, the nation's current uh, public prosecutor has accusations for covering up for her sister, who is also a public prosecutor and was responsible for freeing a dangerous drug gang. During the government of Pedro Castillo, the National Public Prosecutor conveniently decided also to open investigations to a president during his constitutional term. This um, happened for the first time in Peru. We have never seen something like that before. This happened during Pedro Castillo's government. Several sources report that at the very beginning of the Boluarte's regime, the first president of the Council of Ministers was a person very closely linked to the current national public prosecutor. In addition, the public prosecutors had a very unfortunate participation, to say the least, in the terrible forced entry to the University of San Marcos. About the criminalization of protests and free speech. The popular demands are very clear around the country, but they have been growing, of course, during these two months. In December, the demands had to do mainly with the freedom of Pedro Castillo, the shutting down of the Congress and the resignation of Dina Boluarte. Now, of course, we also have demands for justice and reparations for the victims of the state repression and their families. There are, of course, now more actors added to the protests, and they have multiple complaints, including, of course, an energetic rejection of the authoritarian regime of Dina Boluarte. Currently, the police is behaving very clearly as a political instrument of the government. We can see this in every public demonstration. A perfect example of this is the terrible entrance of the police with tanks to the University of San Marcos, the oldest public university in the country. They arrested there 194 people. All but one were released. That is, in 193 cases, there was no reason to arrest them on the first place. For the current government, both demonstrating peacefully on the streets and talking about the beginning of a constitutional process is considered terrorism. This is, of course, not only authoritarian, but also a terrible lack of respect for thousands of victims of terrorism that we have suffered in Peru during the time of the political violence. 
yesterday, the government has established an email where you can send anonymous complaints if you consider someone suspicious of terrorism. Needless to say, the traditional media plays a very, very sad role in the protest coverage and is permanently stigmatizing everyone who opposes the regime. So everyone that decides to go and demonstrate on the streets against the regime is in serious danger. Fortunately, there are also independent media and social networks allowing some pluralism still. There is also, of course, the international media, which has covered the demonstration in a much more appropriate way than the traditional media in the country. This, of course, has caused discomfort in the regime, and they have made it known in communications sent to their ambassadors around the world, requesting some measures to improve the government's authoritarian image in the international sphere. Uh, finally, I would like to say uh, that I consider that uh, Peru is clearly no longer a democracy. Um, of course, we all have the responsibility to spread the voice and to fight until we get it back. But I think that uh, something that has not been mentioned a lot around, or at least not here in Peru, is the role of Dina Boluarte even before December 7th. Um, this is, I think, also an issue that we Peruvians deserve, in which we Peruvians deserve clarification. I am sure that sooner or later we will have it. Thank you very much for this opportunity, and I'm looking forward to the questions in the Q&A session. Thank you. That was Ileana Carlin Ronquil. Another speaker was Ben Norton speaking about the role of the United States in supporting the ouster. We know that the U.S. and the Canadian governments have strongly supported this coup in Peru, and it's pretty clear why. Peru is a major source for natural resources, especially minerals that have become increasingly important, particularly as we transition away from fossil fuels. And obviously, I, I support the transition away from fossil fuels, which are destroying the environment and the planet, but we need to understand where those minerals used to create renewable energies come from. And they tend to come from the global south, especially South America and especially sub-Saharan Africa. So people probably know about the cobalt mining with children in Congo and the exploitative conditions there. I'm going to talk about the situation in Peru, which is not dissimilar. Peru has some of the world's largest reserves of copper. After Chile, Peru has the world's second largest reserves of copper. It also has very significant reserves of gold, silver, iron, zinc, and it has natural gas. In fact, Peru up is, is one of the top producers of natural gas in Latin America, along with Trinidad and Tobago, Latin America and the Caribbean ex extended. And the U.S. ambassador, who is a former CIA agent in scare quotes, has been very active not only in supporting the coup, but also in working with Peru's Ministry of Mining and Energy. One day before the coup on December 7th, so this was on December 6th, the U.S. ambassador to Peru, Lisa Kennett, met with the defense minister in Peru and 
Then the day of the coup on December 7th, the defense minister told the military to disobey the orders of President Castillo, who had the constitutional right, according to Article 134 of the Constitution, to dissolve the, the Congress if it prevented him from appointing a chief of the Council of Ministers two times, which is what it did. As long as he said that he was going to hold new elections, which is what he was going to do, he was constitutionally allowed to do that. But the military refused to follow his orders, and instead the military arrested him. And the defense minister who ordered the military to, to disobey his orders met with the U.S. ambassador one day before the coup. And since then, the U.S. ambassador has been very busy. She's been meeting with the leader of the coup regime, the unelected leader, Dina Boluarte, and other top ministers. And in January, she met with the ministers of mining and the vice ministers of hydrocarbons and energy. And we should keep in mind that across Latin America, more than half of the countries in the region have opposed the coup and have continued expressing support for constitutional president Pedro Castillo, including Mexico, uh, Argentina, Colombia, Honduras, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, numerous Caribbean countries. So there's been a massive rebellion in Latin America against this coup. But of course, the United States and Canada have supported this coup. And I want to talk about some of the economic reasons why that would be. Oh, I'll, I'll say one other thing. Lisa Kenna, we know the U.S. ambassador, we know that she worked for the CIA for at least nine years, according to a resume that she submitted to the U.S. Congress when she was going through the approval process. And, you know, they say there's no such thing as a former CIA agent. Everyone knows there is a revolving door between the U.S. State Department and the CIA, and you, many U.S. embassies are used as cover for CIA operations. And also, Lisa Kenna comes from a family of CIA agents. I'm actually working on a report about that, more about her record. But what I want to show here is an article that I've already published that shows some of the economic interests and mining interests in Peru, because it not only involves U.S. companies, but also involves Canadian companies. So... This is Lisa Kenna. This is the U.S. ambassador meeting with, at that time, she's meeting in this photo with the Minister of Energy and Mines. And on the other side of the photo is mining in Peru. And here is a tweet that was shared by the Peruvian Ministry, Ministry of Energy and Mining on January 18th, showing the, the CIA agent turned U.S. ambassador Lisa Kenna, Lisa Kenna meeting with the Ministry of Energy and Mines. So, of course, um, people probably know that after the U.S.-backed coup in Bolivia in 2019, Bolivia is the world's largest producer of lithium, and lithium is extremely important for batteries. So whether it's batteries for electric cars, for phones, for computers, pretty much every device that everyone is using right now requires a large amount of lithium. And someone, a, a Twitter activist, or an activist who was on Twitter, in 2020, criticized Elon Musk and said, you know, you know, it wasn't in the best interest of the people, the U.S. government organizing a coup against Evo Morales, who was the elected socialist president of Bolivia. So you, Elon Musk, could obtain the lithium. And then Elon Musk, the head of Tesla, he responded, we will coup whoever we want, deal with it. And he later deleted that tweet. And then he said, oh, it was a joke. But I mean, this is the attitude of these corporate oligarchs. And I should point out that uh, Goldman Sachs, the world's second largest uh, second largest investment bank, they published a report in 2022 in which they referred to copper as the new oil. 
And people might have heard that lithium has been referred to as the white gold, but copper is also extremely important, especially in a transition toward renewable energy. So during his campaign, President Pedro Castillo had pledged that he was going to try to reassert national control over Peru's natural resources. He pledged that he wanted to tax the companies involved in mining so that 70% of the proceeds would go to the government and he would use that money to fund social programs and healthcare and education and poverty reduction. And when he became president, although, as Eliana mentioned, he faced a lot of obstacles, including lawfare, that is judicial attacks by the legal system, which is very corrupt. And also he faced constant coup attempts by the right-wing controlled Congress, which has 7% approval. And, and he was very limited in what he could do. But despite that, he did announce a second agrarian reform and tried to have land reform, which is in the land in Peru is still very much largely dominated by transnational corporations and, and millionaire and billionaire oligarchs. So these are more tweets from the Ministry of Energy and Mining. But here I'll show this. I went through reports from the Peruvian Ministry of Energy and Mines. I went through a lot of their reports and especially the reports that they release that are designated for foreign investors trying to at attract foreign investment in the country. And they talk about how over half of the exports of Peru come from mining and of all of its exports, the entire exports for the entire country, 57% come from mining minerals and 30% comes from copper, 15% comes from gold, 4% comes from zinc, nearly 3% comes from iron, and then there is a few others. So just copper and gold represent almost one half of all of Peru's exports, and mining represents over 10% of GDP, which is the entire size of the Peruvian economy. So this is a massive part of the Peruvian economy. And of course, Many of these companies that are doing the mining belong to, to foreign transnational corporations. I'll talk about that in a second. Peru is also a, a significant exporter of natural gas. I'll come back to that in a second. But what I want to show is this very important map here. This is a map that was published by the Peruvian Ministry of Mine, Energy and Mining. And actually, this report they, they published was in English because it was meant for foreign investors. And this map shows the countries of origin whose companies, private companies are investing in mining exploration projects. And you'll note that after Peru itself, and that's a misleading figure because many of the Peruvian companies and scare quotes that are investing, actually they're only Peruvian in name, but they're, they're, they're registered locally as Peruvian companies, but they're owned by foreign transnational corporations. So the three biggest mining companies on earth are Glencore, which is Swiss, which is Swiss, BHP, which is Australian, and Rio Tinto, which is Australian and British. So they're the three biggest mining corporations on earth, and they're all actively involved, and especially in they're the major shareholders in many local Peruvian companies. But after that, what is the biggest country whose, inv whose companies are invested in Peru? It's not the United States, it's actually Canada. So 38% of the companies invested, of the investments in exploration projects are ostensibly Peruvian companies. But after that, 28% are Canadian companies, followed by Brazilian companies, around 13%. And then Swiss companies, 7%. British companies, 6%. Uh, 
also Australian, Japanese, and US and Mexican companies. Now, in terms of the British companies, one of the other major investors in Peruvian mining is a company called Anglo-American. That's the real name. Anglo-American is, is a major investor in Peruvian mining. And this map only shows the mining exploration. So it doesn't show the investments for the existing mining projects that are already going on. Now, unsurprisingly, what's being mined in Peru is largely gold, but also copper are the main, main minerals are going after, representing together nearly 80%. But there's also zinc, silver, and tin. And if you look at a map of where the mining exploration projects are happening, it's all over Western Peru and also Southern Peru, especially in a lot of rural areas that are, have very impoverished populations that were actually were the, the social base for Pedro Castillo and also are the base for the protests today. Now, in terms of, I know there's a lot of Canadians here, in terms of the Canadian companies, uh, there's a Canadian company that's deeply invested, which is called Tech Resources. And I mentioned that the second biggest mining investor in Peru is ostensibly a, a Peruvian company, which is called Compañera Minera Antamina, but it's actually one third owned by BHP, one third owned by Glencore, 23, nearly 23% by Canada's Tech Resources and 10% by Japan's Mitsubishi Group. And I should point out here that, that if you look at the size of the entire Peruvian economy, its GDP in nominal terms is about 220 billion US dollars. But if you look at the revenue of a company like Glencore, which is a massive corporate giant, Glencore, this is a Swiss company, which is involved largely in mining, but also commodities training. Glencore commodities trading, uh, Glencore's entire revenue is about $200 billion a year. So we're talking about a company that's basically the entire size of the Peruvian economy. These are massive corporate giants. Also, BHP and the other biggest mining corporation, Rio Tinto, their, both of their revenue is around $60 billion. So these are massive corporate monstrosities. There's also another Canadian company that's involved in gold mining, which is called Barrick gold, but other companies that are involved in these mining projects include a U.S.-Mexican company, which is called the Southern Copper Corporation, which is based in Arizona, and there's a U.S. mining corporation, which is called Freeport-McMorin, which is also based in Arizona. So I just wanted to go through and show some of the corporate interests driving this because, you know, there's a reason that the U.S. government and Canadian government are strongly supporting this coup despite the fact that the coup regime has already killed around 70 protesters. And in addition to killing protesters, there's, there have been videos of the Peruvian force, uh, state forces disappearing, kidnapping and disappearing activists. There was a viral video published a few days ago showing a, a young activist who was put into a car and no one knows what happened to him. So, I mean, the US and the Canadian government are supporting this regime that reminds the world and the Peruvian people of Plan Condor, of Operation Condor, when the US and Canada backed these fascist dictatorships in South America in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And the reason they're doing that is very clear because they have a lot of corporate investment and especially mining interests. And that's why the US ambassador has been meeting with the mining, the, the, the Ministry of Energy and Mining and discussing corporate investments. I know I'm over my time. I wanna mention one other fact, one other um, important element here. So in addition to mining interests, there's something related, which is, of course, gas extraction. I mentioned that Peru is a massive exporter of liquefied natural gas 
It's the biggest in Latin America, aside from Latin America and the Caribbean, aside from Trinidad and Tobago and Tobago. And um, this is a, um, a graph of the monthly liquefied natural gas exports that Peru has sent. And I got this from a, a liquefied natural gas um, website that's involved in the LNG industry in Latin America. And if you look in the past year, there's been a massive shift. And before in 2021, almost all of Peru's liquefied natural gas exports went to Asia, to East Asia, specifically Japan, South Korea, and China. But there's been a massive shift in the past year, especially as NATO started ramping up tensions with, with Russia and Ukraine, and then Russia invaded, and then this, this proxy war in Ukraine went to a new level, and, and the West was flooding Ukraine with weapons and now tanks. And you can see that there was a complete shift to sending that liquefied natural gas instead to Europe. So Europe has now become the biggest importer of Peruvian LNG, and obviously they're, doing, they're importing that to replace Russian pipeline gas especially now that the, the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up in a sabotage attack linked to the U.S. and Britain. So in addition to mining, Peru has become a significant energy source for Europe, and it's helping Europe get off of Russian sources of energy, specifically oil and gas. And of course, the U.S. has become the world's largest liquefied natural gas exporter in, in the past year because Europe is now importing significantly more expensive U.S. LNG to re replace the Russian pipeline gas. So Peru plays a very strategic role as the world's second largest producer of copper after Chile and as a major source for gold, silver, zinc, and uh, li liquefied natural gas. And that explains why Western governments have refused to condemn the coup regime. In case you just joined us, you're listening to Canada and the Uprising in Peru, a panel discussion on the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm Michael Welch. The talk was organized and recorded by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. We just heard from journalist and analyst Ben Norton. Our next speaker is Eve Engler. He's the activist and author of 12 books, including his recent book, House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy, and Stand on Guard for Whom? A People's History of the Canadian Military. Eve spoke on Canada's role in the Castillo-Bularte affair. The Canadian government, as, as Ben mentioned, has, of course, backed this uh, ouster of uh, Pedro Castillo. And uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's partly on the basis of what Ben was laying out and Canada has, you know, $10 billion in mining investment. And they have made very clear that Canadian mining sector is very nervous about uh, any sort of nationalistic resource policies anywhere in the hemisphere. That, that's been something that's been stated over and over again by uh, Canadian uh, business press, and, uh, and they have consistently targeted governments that, that um, uh, increase royalty rates on mining or not try to nationalize mining, etc. The other part is, I think, that the, they were angry that Castile's initial foreign minister immediately denounced the Lima Group which was really a Canadian instigated initiative 
with a with Lima as the cover rather than Ottawa, the Ottawa group uh, targeting the Venezuelan government, which is of course very tied to Washington's desires. And the Castillo's initial foreign minister called it the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of uh, Peru's foreign policy. So the Canadian government didn't was you know wanted to see Castillo go. Uh, I thought I'd run through a little bit of what they've done over the past couple months. In immediately hours after Castillo was removed, detained, the Canadian representative at the Organization of American States declared. Canada would like to express its deep concern over President Castillo's attempt to dissolve Congress and establish a government of exception in Peru. Such destabilizing actions run directly counter to the recommendations of the OAS high-level group and risk jeopardizing Peru's adherence to democratic norms. So this is right after the elected president is ousted. You, you can get into constitutional debates, but at the end of the day, Castillo was the elected president. So to try to claim that the ouster of the elected president was a step forward for democracy is, in my opinion, pretty hard one uh, uh, to sustain. Since that time, there have been many, many comments by Canadian officials trying to shore up the shaky uh, Boulevarte government. They have often uh, followed the U.S. So the U.S. ambassador will meet the Boulevarte's foreign minister, and then the Canadian ambassador the next day, U.S. Uh, ambassador meets the mining minister, the Canadian ambassador the next day, uh, Secretary Blinken has a conversation with the foreign minister or, or Boulevarte the next day or a couple of days later, uh, Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign minister, same thing. So um, Canadian ambassador uh, Luis Marcotte in Lima has already met with four had in-person meetings with four different ministers or, or, or Boulevarte herself, uh, the foreign minister, the mining minister, the, the uh, vulnerable populations minister, and Boulevarte. Uh, Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign minister, uh, about 10 days after Castillo was ousted, she, she tweeted, spoke with Peru's foreign minister, Ana Cecilia Gervasi, to, re to reiterate our support for the transitional government of President Boluarte. This is after a couple dozen had already been killed in, by the uh, security forces, mostly indigenous. Uh, Luis Marcotte, Canada's uh, uh, ambassador, similarly tweets out support for the, the uh, uh, Boluarte uh, uh, government while it's killing people and shooting people and detaining people. Uh, Mar Marcotte tweeted out one today with minister a photo with minister Gervasi reiterated support for the transition government of president Boluarte to create consensus leading to transparent and fair elections that will bring social peace. So there's nominal comments about violence, but it's all at the abstract level. Like the violence is just sort of happening. It's not that the usurper government has instated violence against those opposing the ouster of Castillo, uh, against those opposing the, the uh, racism, the disenfranchisement of uh, the largely uh, uh, peasant and uh, indigenous uh, populations. So, so the Canadian government, I think, has just put a lot of effort, diplomatic effort, 
to to support this shaky government. And, and as Ben mentioned, it's a government that's rejected by many countries in the hemisphere, many large countries in the hemisphere, and a number of ministers in the government have have uh, resigned over the over the violence. So it's very, so it's very shaky, and I, I think it's almost uh, very rare for a Canadian ambassador to have four meetings in a six week period with top with ministers or the president of a government anywhere in the world. That doesn't happen in Canadian foreign policy. So the fact that Marcotte is is having all these meetings and tweeting out about these meetings is because they want to shore up this this uh, this shaky uh, shaky government. So we should. This is not some sort of just it's just happening, but this is active uh, uh, support. Now, unfortunately, none of this should really surprise us, right? And uh, and if you actually look with regards to Peru, when when uh, Alberto Fujimori instigated the Otto Golpe back in uh, in 1992, uh, sort of a, a coup against the Congress and to grant himself a whole lot more power, Canada backed that, um, backed from Fujimori. Basically, no condemnation. Fujimori, a few years later, will come to a trip, uh, come visit Ottawa. Canadian uh, mining interests greatly increased during that period. That's because Fujimori was pursuing neoliberalism. He was somebody viewed as, you know, sympathetic to capitalism. And so the Canadian government basically went along with this, uh, this sort of uh, uh, coup against the Congress of Fujimori. But if you look back more generally in Canadian foreign policy history, and you don't even have to go backwards, and I will go backwards, but even during this, this, the Trudeau government, right? When Morales, even Morales was ousted in 2019 in Bolivia, Canada provided quite active support through the Organization of American States, uh, through declarations from Minister Christian Freeland, in terms of supporting Morales's ouster, similarly, a little bit less aggressively with regards to to uh, uh, Dilma Rousseff in in uh, the sort of parliamentary uh, impeachment sort of soft coup process in in uh, in uh, in Brazil, and and historically, uh, Arbenz in Guatemala in '54, uh, Goulart in Brazil in '64, Allende in Chile in '73. Aristide in Haiti in 2004, Zelaya in Honduras 2009, Fernando Lugo in, in uh, Paraguay. Uh, Canada has consistently backed the ouster of elected leaders, of leaders that are pursuing social democratic, in some cases more socialistic, in the case of Allende, uh, policies, governments that are in the crosshairs of Washington. And the Canadian government has made it really clear that it, 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 you know, the point of the Lima group was to get rid of the Maduro government, which was viewed as sort of the last bastion of the left in the hemisphere. They, they wanted to eradicate the left in Latin America because Canadian mining interests, more than $100 billion Canadian mining interests in the hemisphere are nervous about nationalistic reforms major Canadian banking interests, including in, in, in Peru. Uh, they want neoliberal uh, uh, policies. So, so the Canadian government has a history of backing uh, the ousters of, of uh, 
uh, social democratic uh, or socialistic leaders. You know, the, the, the degree to which Canada has been engaged, obviously, in Aristide in 2004 was very aggressive, you know, even military engagement, or in the case of Arbenz in, in Guatemala in 54, it was more passive. Uh, today, with what we're seeing in, in Peru, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit more than passive, but it's not, you know, heavily involved, but it's, but it's a clear diplomatic uh, backing for the ouster. Now, just to conclude, the, 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 um, what's amazing to see in all this is just the lack of any resistance. So the CBC published a story 10 days or so after Castillo was ousted, basically talking about the divide in the hemisphere and how, you know, 15 plus countries have criticized Castillo's ouster and that a handful of countries had supported it and Canada was aligning with those, the US and others who supported it. But there's nothing, no politicians. Heather McPherson, the NDP foreign affairs critic, has not even mentioned this. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute put out an a action alert, sent hundreds of people, sent emails to all the, the foreign critics of the different parties and Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie, and still Heather McPherson uh, stayed silent on it. So it's, it's uh, quite remarkable to see this situation where you have 60 plus people, mostly indigenous, killed in, after the ouster of elected president and, they're in Canada, and Canada playing a clear diplomatic role in, in, in backing uh, the violence and the, and the ouster. And yet there's very little in terms of uh, uh, any criticism uh, being, uh, being raised. I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Another speaker was Kristen Francisconi, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Trent University and a former Latin America Program Coordinator at Mining Watch Canada. Her research interests include the links between Canada's mining, human rights, and the ecological crisis. So as Eve just said, on January 18th, Canada's ambassador to Peru, Luis Marcot, tweeted out all these photos uh, with him and the Peruvian mine minister about how much uh, modern mining could benefit Peruvian communities and how Canada was ready to support the Peruvian delega delegation to Toronto's Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada's annual conference, which is a very uh, controversial uh, but important for the industry conference that happens every year in Toronto. Um, what I'm going to try to ask in this presentation today is why the ambassador thought it was appropriate to meet with the Minister of Mines and Energy on the day that thousands of protesters were arriving to Lima to voice their just concerns about the spiraling political crisis. And just days after 17 more uh, people had been killed by police in Culiac and Puno, which at that point I think was about a total to about 45 um, victims of, of police led violence. Um, it's important context for us that the Canadian Embassy is only about 800 meters from one of the main identified meeting points for protesters, the Plaza Bolognese. So there's no way that the ambassador could move around the city without observing the intense uh, repression and violence taking place in their backyard. At the time of their meeting, Lima was paralyzed with manifestations, and just a few days early, just a few days after, the oldest university in, in the country, uh, San Marcos, which Eliana noted to us today would be invaded by armored tanks where hundreds of students and rural protesters would be detained, strip searched, assaulted, and deprived of their basic civil rights. So we can understand, I think, Canada's failure to insist that the rights and dignity of Peruvian protesters be protected within this terrifying context as part of the course of how Canadian diplomatic service 
and the Canadian mining companies have been actively engaging in undermining Indigenous environmental and human rights defenders at the behest of capital. Instead of opting to support the will of the Peruvian people to prevent further harm, they opted to work with the government to, to promote further mining. And this is because it makes good economic sense to do too so. So I'm going to go into some of the things that, um, that Ben talked about, but with a couple of little points of clarification. Um, so uh, what's an, an important thing to think about in terms of Canada's role in Peru, since we're talking about that today, specifically with respect to foreign direct investment in mining, um, Canada is the third most important investor in mine construction. So how much money is going into building mine projects in 2021? Canadian uh, mining companies invested $8 billion in 10 mining projects, which represented about 15% of the total investment in mine construction at the time. Now, with respect to exploration, which is the map that, that Ben showed us, which is the earlier stage of mine development, which we know, or all of our Canadian companies are doing garbage all over the world, because that's our expertise, uh, is to be terrible, uh, tiny mining companies. Um, that's where, um, Maybe I'm not surprised, and none of you should be if you know anything about Canadian mining, um, that Canadian companies are the most important player after Peruvian companies, representing 28% of the total investment in exploration, but spending relatively nothing, because that's also very typical to junior mining companies, $165 million on 21 projects. So the ones that are really important in terms of economic influence, if there are any, uh, is are the ones that are the $8 million in mine development and the ones that are actively operating today. So uh, there's important, Canada has important operating mines uh, in Peru, um, including Hud Bay, Constantia Mine, Pan American Silver, Schwawindo and La Arena Mines, Tex Antamina Mine. I'm gonna briefly return to two of these companies shortly, but just to pause on Antamina because its importance can't be understated. Andamina is operated by Tech, uh, who has a bunch, as one of the chat members mentioned, has a bunch of very toxic coal mines, uh, in, in BC that have totally contaminated the downstream watershed for Indigenous communities. It has a terrible record of environmental, of violating environmental legislation around the world. Well, it may be not surprising that tech is, uh, is in Peru. Um, uh, and Antamina is Peru's largest mine. It's the single most important producer of copper, silver, zinc, and ranked among the top 10 producing mines in the world in terms of volume. Uh, it's by all accounts a giant. It's a horrendous uh, scar on the earth. Uh, and it's significantly important then for overall Peruvian mine revenue, right? This is one mine that's very important. Uh, in 2021, the mine generated $6 billion in revenue and $3.7 billion in gross profits. One mine, one year. 22% of that went to tech, but then the rest was divvied up between um, Glencore, BHP, and Mitsubishi. Um, now, so on the, that's on the sort of the production operating development side. The other piece, which I think is really important, is the, is the question of sort of Canadian importing of, of Peruvian mineral goods. Um, Canada is really important. Um, of the total value of Peruvian uh, mineral and metal exports in 2021, Canada was the third most important global importer after China and India, exporting or sorry, importing about 6.5% of those total exports. Now, it's really important to pause here, though, because sometimes I feel like me and others, we overemphasize the importance of Canada as an economic player in some of these power plays, and we forget about Asia and all of this. And I say that because it's Canada's 6.5% compares to China's 43% of import of total imports of all mineral and metal products being exported from Peru. Um, and so even though copper is important for the energy transition, 
right now, Canada has nowhere to, Canada would do nothing with that copper and the US very little because China, the, the majority of productive consumption of, of copper for all of those spin-offs um, that Ben is talking about is happening in Asia, right? And so it's really important for the broader geopolitical context that we keep that in mind in terms of how important Peru is on the, on the global scale. Um, now, with respect to gold, that's not so true. And it's really important uh, to keep in mind that Canada is the second most important importer of Peruvian gold. And we import about 27% of, of the gold in exports. That's over $3 billion in 2021, which is just about 2% of Peru's total GDP for the same year. So it's a significant amount of revenue that we're, um, that we're sending to Peru in exchange for, for gold imports. Um, and so we can we have been seeing as as Eva sort of been sort of laying out for us in this time frame that Canada's position has been at best lukewarm when making public statements about the egregious human rights violations that we heard about in detail today from Eliana and that we've been seeing uh, unfortunately on alternative media. Um, for example, the most recent OAS statement on the conflict to which Canada is a signatory reflects the Canadian government's watered down position on the crisis. They diffuse blame and thus responsibility to protesters and the Peruvian state as if they were equally responsible and equally to blame. They maintain the official government's position. Um, but the, obviously the near totality of victims, as Eliana noted to us, have been overwhelmingly civilians at the hands of an indiscriminate use of police violence. This violence isn't just the product of these protests though, and what I'm gonna talk about now is that it actually has much deeper roots in the relationship between, in this case, mine capital and the countryside. Uh, and most recently in the last two decades with the rise of the neoliberal extractive industry. Um, and so this extreme manifestation of police violence towards primarily rural, but not exclusively rural people has important links to the modern mining industry as our ambassador calls it. And this is an important distinction between Peru and other countries in Latin America. Whereas when Canadian mining companies are embroiled in conflict with a local community in countries outside of Peru, they typically depend on henchmen, thugs or paramilitary forces to repress dissent. In Peru, Canadian companies benefit from state-sanctioned police protection and impunity. In Peru, mining companies are afforded the right to sign service contracts directly with the National Peruvian Police Force, and off-duty police officers are permitted to work for private security companies while using state properties such as weapons, uniforms, and ammunition. Um, perhaps most terrible is that the police are guaranteed immunity from criminal prosecution in the event that they fatally injure a protester. They can use live ammunition to shoot and kill with state-supported immunity, and they have. And this is very key because I think we are seeing this manifestation of violence and repression uh, in Lima and in the big, in sort of the, the hubs, the regional hubs, as something that perhaps is new or happening right now. But this is the reality of rural communities that face mining development in their in their in their communities. They are living in a constant state of violence, terror, and repression. Um, so companies can continue to benefit from unfettered securitization of their assets. Even today, Canada today, like today, today, Canada's Hud Bay Minerals Constantia Mine and MMG's Las Bambas operations have been fortified by police, according to local sources, with the pretense of preventing attacks on the mine camps. But obviously, this serves to simply solidify the central role of dominance that these companies play in the regions where they operate. The violence isn't only used against rural, people, rural peoples at the blockade point or the massive marches which tend towards shutting down transport hubs or cities, but it's a daily occurrence which according to several international Peruvian NGOs, threaten the daily safety of defenders and community members and even prevent them from being able to claim their rights. As one report famously noted, 
The existence of these police contracts creates a hostile scenario that puts human rights at risk, human rights defenders at risk. <clears throat> As the Cusco-based organization Derechos Humanos Sin Fronteras has demonstrated with several environmental and social impact studies that had based Constancia Mine, these contracts are not only important for seeing <clears throat> violent eruptions of explicit state violence, but they form the daily backdrop of racialized and class-based intimidation and threats that community leaders face when making decisions to question the justice of agreements they hold with the company. <coughs> Today, there was an earlier panel at noon um, uh, that Surlac sponsored. It was a great panel as well. And uh, Peruvian Boris Mikhail Pasta Susacasa, Susaka, perdón, argued that many of the Peruvians who traveled across the country to Lima today to have their concerns heard by the central government come from communities who have faced heavy-handed corporate and state violence in response to their pursuit of justice against extractive industries. Most <clears throat> of the largest and most sustained protests in Peru have been held around extractive industry projects in the last few years. Some of the most emblematic, the 2011 Aymarazo in Puno, and the sustained rounds of blockades and protests against the mining corridor in Cusco against Hudbay, MMA, and Glencore's operations were instigated by Canadian mining companies. Current calls for a constituent assembly, he, ordered to, he argued today, have emerged from these rural campesino movements who have been demanding justice only to be blindly fired upon by police for decades. Finally, Canadian interests are mired in the violent environmental and territorial dispossession of Indigenous peoples affected by small-scale artisanal mining. Even if it's not Canadian companies who are specifically operating these small mines, Canadian commercializers who are importing the gold, as we just learned, um, are, in still, are in a large part <clears throat> still connected to organized crime. The most horrific of the string of cases occurred last year where the public prosecutor of Arequipa accused a Canadian mining company, Inti Gold, of hiring hitmen to kill 14 artisanal miners and disappear 12 more who had been working on the company's concessions. So beyond the violence, <clears throat> Um, other Peruvian NGOs and communities facing unwanted and unbridled Canadian extraction have condemned legacies of fragment conte flagrant contamination of agricultural lands and waterways, as is the case with the Quito Vilca mine, an increasing criminalization coupled with environmental dispossession at the Schwawindo mine, both of whom are operated by a supposed ESG leader, Pan American Silver, as violating the indigenous self-determination and the right to the clean environment, as is the case with Plateau Energy's proposed lithium and uranium mine atop the region's most important tropical glacier, and is undercutting economic benefits for communities most affected by mining operations, as is the case with Hudbay's Constantia mine. These are the modern mines that Canadian officials continue to promote with the with Peruvian officials. And unfortunately, the violence that we've seen throughout these past two months is but a snapshot of the long durée violence that rural peoples have been facing for a few decades at behest of foreign mining capital. So finally, it's not only the importers and producers who need to be considered as having some responsibility in the ongoing political crisis, but our embassy officials themselves. They are the movers and shakers that make all of this possible and they actively turn a blind eye to human rights abuses being committed at the behest of Canadian companies or facilitate their taking place. Embassy officials in Peru are no exception. In 2017, while working as the program coordinator for Mining Watch Canada, Jennifer Moore, a Canadian citizen, was detained by Peruvian police for speaking with Quechua communities affected by Hague Bay's Constancia project during a documentary film showing. She was subsequently banned from re-entering the country and labeled as a threat to national security for showing a documentary. A newly re released report by the Justice and Corporate Accountability Project demonstrates referring to hundreds of pages of government documents that, and I quote, 
Canadian officials utterly failed to comply with their own voices at risk guidelines to take meaningful steps to support Jennifer Moore, unquote. And they didn't just turn a blind eye. The evidence they point to demonstrates that the officials held a political bias against her due to her employment activities and actively refused to, to recognize her as a human rights defender in spite of clear evidence and widespread expressions of civil society's support for her work. They also made statements to UN bodies that were false and misleading with respect to what they knew about HUD Bay's potential involvement in this, in this case. They defended the company at all costs, despite what had happened to a Canadian citizen under their purview. Moore's case is not the exception, rather it reflects the common interactions that rural peoples in Peru have had with the police and Canadian mining companies. If you even think about talking about organizing, you can be thrown in jail, accused of terrorism, beaten or killed with impunity. Last year, the Peruvian Episcopal Commission for Social Action wrote an open letter to the delegates attending PDAC, which is this conference that the ambassador is promoting, wherein they expressed that contrary to the promises made by Marcos and others, mining has not, quote, has not brought the promised improvement in quality of life for most communities in Peru in the mining areas. On the contrary, it has resulted in corruption, environmental contamination, and has infringed on people's right to life and health, leaving behind social conflict, disease, and even death. And so even if Canadian mining is likely not the only cause of this historical political mobilization that has been met with infuriating violence, Canadians need to recognize the longer history of dispossession as directly related to our ongoing economic activities in Peru. The tweet from Ambassador Marcot then should be contemplated within this broader nexus of corporate state-imposed violence on rural communities to promote mining in the name of supposed sustainable economic growth. When Canada promotes Peruvian mining at PDAC this March in Toronto, they're doing so with full awareness of the reality that those activities mean for people forced with threats, intimidation, and explicit violence. Thank you. That was Kirsten Francisconi. You've been listening to a panel discussion focused on the uprising in Peru and the role of the United States and Canada in supporting the ouster of Castillo. The panel was convened and recorded by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute back in February and featured Ben Norton, Eve Engler, Ileana Carlin Ranquil, Kirsten Francisconi. The complete discussion is available for free at the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute's YouTube page. They graciously allowed us to air it on the Global Research News Hour, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Music was the song Shifting Sands from Purple Planet Music and available on the website purple-planet.com. If you would like to give us feedback on this or any other program we have aired, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. My name is Michael Welch. I invite you to please join us again for more special programming next week. Thank you.